Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... I've got an interview with Dr. Bernie Marini. He is a pharmacist at the University of Michigan, and he's going to walk us through every single recent AML new drug. If you're interested in AML, you won't want to miss this. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. On Plenary Session, we've heard listener feedback, and we're going to try something new. We're going to take our long episodes, and we're going to put them out piecemeal, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, just as you've asked. And then we will see what happens and how people listen. So the experiment's on. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. It's the holiday season here at Plenary Session, and that means it's time for our semi-annual pledge drive. That's right. Plenary Session is supported by Patreon backers. you got to go to patreon.com, find Plenary Session. And if you are a planner, if you're a fan of this show, you need to donate to this show to keep it going. Plenary Session has no other support. We don't do advertisements. We keep it pure. And so we are supported by small backers. So if you enjoy this podcast, you should support the show. If you don't enjoy this podcast, you shouldn't support the show. I wouldn't recommend it only if you enjoy the podcast. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Bernie Marini. Bernie Marini is a pharmacist at uh, the University of Michigan Medical Center, and he specializes in the heme malignancies. He's clinical associate professor there. Uh, Bernie, it's a pleasure to finally get to talk to you. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. I'm a huge plenard and a huge fan, so it's great to be here. Oh, that's awesome. That's great to hear. Um, and so you, is it fair to say, spend most of your time on the inpatient leukemia and lymphoma service? Yep. Yep. That's a good assessment. So I, I primarily rotate on one of our two hematology services. So mostly acute leukemias, aggressive lymphoma patients, but other you know, random hematologic malignancies that come up. Places where we know dose-adjusted our epoch is better. <laughs> so all patients, always. <laughs> always. <laughs> well, we're going to get into things. Um, first, I think we're going to talk about some of the leukemia drugs, um, and then we're going to talk about perhaps some lymphoma drugs, if, if time allows. Um, where should we start? Let's start. You recently tweeted a slide. This was a slide that has been borrowed. Somebody put this together. Oh, I see at the bottom. Courtesy of Andrew Way, MBBS, mm -hmm. PhD. So Andrew should get credit for, for putting all these Kaplan-Meier curves on the same plot. He actually color-coded them. He must have done something to digitalize it. I mean, he didn't just... nice. <laughs> yeah, he didn't just cut and paste it. I mean, I, I'm not exactly... Actually, the more I look at it, actually, everything is formatted quite similarly. I mean, something's strange. I mean, he, he can't possibly have individual patient-level data for all these trials. I don't know how he's doing this. Any idea how we made this plot? No clue. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm making these plots, we'll trace over the curves yeah. in uh, yeah. in PowerPoint. Yeah. But 
this I, is I thought I thought a nice figure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a good hypothesis. But I think the thing that will speak against it is he's got the uh, sensor marks. There's no way he traced all those tick marks. No uh, chance. Not no chance. Time. Yeah, no chance. All right, let's go through these. Let's go through these. Um, let's start with let's start with um the big one, the uh the seven plus three plus mitostorin. Um, this was a randomized control trial that came out a few years ago, the CLGB uh, 1063 study. Um, and this was a randomized control trial, which was 7 plus 3 induction for FLT3 ITD, adding in mitostorin. It wasn't just, um, if I recall, it wasn't just FLT3 ITD. It was also FLT3 um, tyrosine kinase mutations as well. And it shows an overall survival advantage. And if you look at these curves, you know, it looks like there's a few percentage points higher cure rate, maybe 5%, 4%. But if you look at the median, where the median falls, um, by chance alone, these curves <laughs> skirt above and below the median. So that if you, if you express this as an improvement in median survival, it was something like um, 20 months versus 80 months. It looked like yeah, amazing, right? Three times better median overall survival. Yeah. It's dramatic. <laughs> I, yeah, and in fact, I think there are some people who had the audacity to um, to put it that way. But of course, it's just because mm -hmm. one curve is right below the median, right. one curve is right above the median. It's just hugging. But it's, it looks like a 5% increase in cure rate. Um, uh, well, or, or, or at least durable remission rate because, you know, towards the end, the curves kind of trickle a little bit closer. Um, what about um, this, this trial? Um, one of the things that I want to point out before before I let you give your concerns is um, it's an unusual study because my understanding is the cooperative group paid for it and not the company. And so the company's making a, a ton of money off um, the labors of the public. Um, but there's some other issues in this study, like consolidation and things like that. What do you think about this trial? Um, do you use this drug? How do you interpret this study? So I will say we do use this drug, but slightly differently than they do in the trial. Yeah. And there's a, there's a couple reasons for that. I think, um, you know, overall, being a cooperative group study, it's hard to get people to agree on the best design. But I do think there are a couple of issues that make interpretation of this trial a bit challenging. So the first thing that we noticed in the trial is the Donorubicin dose that they used. Mm -hmm. So these were young, fit patients. These were patients, you know, 18 to 60 years of age. So they and used 90 milligrams per meter squared. Yep, exactly. They're using 90 milligrams yeah. per meter squared. But in this study, they use 60 milligrams per meter squared. Bastard. And, I, I, you know, I always hear the argument, well, yeah, there's 60, that UK study, yeah. 60 versus 90, but it's double induction. So it's really not the same as what we do here in the U.S. So and, I think yeah, I think that is one flaw. We don't know if 60 is the same as 90. And, it it and, could and, be. And we know 90 is better than 45. Isn't that the old Correct. Marty Tallman study? That was, uh, uh, yeah, I think Tom in New England Journal, like, 09 so or something. So, Fernandez, New uh, Fernandez, England Journal, right, 2007, yeah. yeah. 2007. So that's right. the old ECOG mm -hmm. 1900 trial. Okay. Um, and, and that was um, for people younger than a certain age, right? Yep. So, patients less than 60 benefited. Um, mm -hmm. Then there was a companion study in older patients, 60 to 65, uh, benefited uh, with 90 versus 45. So, I think, in general, less than 60, 90s technically the standard uh, Dono dose in these patients. But I think they reduced with the thought that mitostorin would add toxicity. But then that's not fair in the comparator arm where you're you're not adding mitostorin, you're giving placebo. So it's potentially inferior therapy there. 
I okay. think that's probably the biggest concern. That's your biggest concern. Okay. Um, and I remember that when it came out, and I remember looking at the UK study, uh, um, and and your point's well taken. I, I don't think I had fully appreciated the UK's a double induction study, so mm-hmm. that might obviate some of the benefit of 90 over 60. Um Okay, um, but w- w- talk about this for a second. Um, many people listening to this podcast will realize that, you know, for a while we've had some Dono shortages and we've had to use Ida and things like that. How do you come up with the equivalent dose, milligrams per meter squared of Ida versus Donorubicin? Where does that calculation come from? Because I have always wondered about that. Yeah, it, it, it's hard. We have um, some studies that have compared various Ida doses to Dono. Um, there's some suggestion that Ida even has a benefit over Dono um, in, in certain studies. Mm-hmm. It is more toxic, though, so it's it's really hard to find uh, an equivalent dose. Mm-hmm. And so something like Ida-12 for three days, we'd, we'd consider technically equivalent to Dono-90 for three days I for see. most patients. I see. And those studies that compare the two, though, they're not good studies. They're not randomized studies. They're, they're, they're not the greatest. There's a lot of them. The Dono doses differ. Um, there's a big, I think, meta-analysis that compared the two. And I think they suggest there's a relapse-free survival benefit at the expense of toxicity for using Ida versus Dono in those patients. I got to look at that. Is it, yeah. a random, is it a meta-analysis of just randomized trials or does it include a bunch of this it, garbage? It is of just randomized, randomized trials, trials, I believe. Right. I, think, I think there's actually a Cochrane review as well. Um, but I, I haven't looked at the data in a while since, since we've had Dono. That's kind of been, been our standard here. So, um, let, but the, yeah, go on. I, th- I think the other issue with induction um, is in this trial, they excluded patients getting um, azole antifungals. Um, things like posaconazole, voriconazole, strong uh, CYP3A4 inhibiting drugs. Uh, and we know in this setting of people with AML getting intensive induction, um, these azole antifungals, they also improve survival. Mm, of so you're course, taking right. away one survival benefit to give another drug. So what antifungal did you have to get here, uh, mycofungin? So you, you would have to get an echinocannon or, or low-dose fluconazole, I believe, in this trial. Okay, I see. Interesting. You know, Bernie, when I when I when this trial first came out, I was making a big stink of sixty versus ninety, and then somebody who 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 seemed like they should know better told me rather firmly that they thought that was fine, and I I let my concern go. But now that you say it again, my nagging concern. I knew I was I knew I was yeah. sniffing around something. Okay, but the Vori um, the POSA point you're making, I hadn't thought about that point. That's interesting, um, you, because they're prohibiting that because, of course, it will interact with mitostorin, and so they don't want that. Um, but by doing that, potentially they they diminish outcomes in the control arm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think many people had expected more from mitostorin. Is that fair to say? Oh, for sure. Yeah, right. I, I think yeah. if anything, you know, this is a marginal gain of all marginal gains. Yeah. Um, this is a pretty minimal benefit, like you suggest, um, with some major flaws that probably contribute to that minimal difference in outcomes. I think in our practice, um, the way that we're using it, maybe not the best. I, I mean, I do think the drug probably does prevent relapses. Um, I think, you know, the goal of these patients is to try to get them to transplant for long-term outcomes. And so we don't use it in induction. It adds toxicity. Um, it allows us to use Dono 90. So where we have been using it is in the consolidation phase prior to transplant. Hmm. Um, and that way, you know, those patients aren't at risk for invasive mold infections. And so you don't need to give it with azole antifungals. You can get the benefit in terms of 
um, potentially preventing relapse. Um, with that being said, still using Dawn 90 in induction. Hmm. Although even doing that, I don't know if we're actually uh, improving outcomes. Right, I was going to say, right, right. I see what you're saying. Yeah, you, you you don't know that that's improving outcomes, but you're certainly not using it as they did in the trial. Okay, no. and then the last thought, mitostorin, just for the record, it's not a uh, for three targeted drug. It is a <laughs> dirty, dirty TKI. I mean, it is one of the filthiest TKIs I've ever dirtiest seen. Dirtiest you get. It's the dirtiest. <laughs> it makes Sunitnib look targeted, right? <laughs> exactly. All right. Exactly. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next one, CPX351. This oh, is my favorite. <laughs> my favorite. You know, because, because a five to one molar ratio is what sells a drug, isn't it? Oh, yeah. The most synergistic. The most pure synergy. Their, their preclinical claims are, are hilarious. That's probably what gets me the most, <laughs> I think, salty about this drug. So that five to one molar ratio, if you ever look up that preclinical trial, it's the, the most synergistic in vitro. The most. But, you know, in certain times, it's antagonistic, it's synergistic, it depends on the time course. Um, different ratios are actually just as synergistic, if not more. It's, it's not the greatest preclinical evidence for providing a drug in a fancy $100,000 gold-plated liposome. Yeah, right, I think. exactly. I mean, and to tell people, so this is the drug Vixios, and Vixios, Vixios is, yes. um, and what is the generic name, liposomal? So it's liposomal donorubicin and cytarabine. I see. Not and to be confused with all of the other liposomal products. You know what? Actually, if I think about liposomal drugs in oncology, um, liposomal irinotecan, not worth its salt, um, is there any good liposomal drug? Liposomal vincristine. <laughs> Not maybe, a maybe doxel. Uh, maybe doxel. Maybe doxel. Yeah. 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 Well, that's fair. That's mm. fair. Okay. I Let, think that's fair. Yeah. Let's go yeah, back so, to yeah. CPX. So you've got your five to one molar ratio. Yeah. So, so that's, that's part of the key. It's five to one molar ratio. Yeah. Five to one molar ratio. And you know, the other. What is the molar ratio of seven plus three? I actually never calculated it. I, I don't know. Okay. It's different. It's not five to it's one. It's five to one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I think the issue is that it changes over time, right? Of so course. In the first, the first three, three days, days, yeah. Maybe have the optimal molar ratio or a better molar ratio, but then over time, uh, that diminishes. Okay. Um, the other aspects are it distributes more often to the bone marrow because it's liposomal and supposedly, you know, going to tissues and bone marrow. That's better, but it probably also increases cytopenias, yeah, as we'll see in the like. trial. Yeah, right. The other, the other major claim is when it's in the liposome, it's not effluxed by PGP. But if we know how liposomes work, as soon as it's released into the into the cell, it's it can be by, fully effluxed right. by PGP. <laughs> I know what that is. That's hell. the dumbest argument ever. I know. I mean, these all these sort of pathophysiology arguments, the arguments that it has a quote, selenexer has a novel mechanism of action, so it's so good. It really pains me because I, you're counting on the person not understanding that that's not actually a benefit of a drug. It's just a story you tell yourself, like you tell your children stories to put them to sleep. You're just <laughs> telling a just-so story so you can go to sleep on your mound of cash and sleep easy. Makes us feel better. Makes you feel better. Okay, so come back to this trial. So this trial, my understanding is it was, um, there's an age restriction on this trial, and yet when the FDA approved it, they took away that age restriction, classic FDA. They took it away. Silly. And um, yeah. there was a lot of treatment-related MDS turning into AML in this study, wasn't there? Yeah, so it was, uh, it was patients age 60 to 75, so it was these older patients who were still fit for intensive therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and this included therapy-related AML, so AML potentially due to prior chemotherapy or radiation, um, AML with a history of MDS um, or prior CMML, 
and then AML with um, MDS-related cytogenetics. So we kind of lump these in the WHO criteria into AML MRC, yeah, um, which also includes AML with myelodysplasia-related changes by morphology. Yeah. And so the FDA approval has that cohort of patients in it, but in this trial, those patients were not studied. And they don't actually, we think, have worse outcomes than de novo AML patients just by morphology. Okay. And so I think that is one extrapolation that does occur um, based on this data that's probably not great and the approval. And, and there's something about this trial of consolidation. What was the cons- Isn't there something interesting in this study? I, it's been a while since I read yeah. it. Yeah. So <laughs> they compared 7 plus 3 um, to CPX351 or Vixios. I, I hate using the name just because I, know. I think the drug is of marginal benefit. But in consolidation, they gave 5 plus 2 consolidation mm. uh, in the 3 plus 7 arm, which, mm-hmm. you know, if you query hematologists and ask, you know, what is your standard consolidation for fit patients who you give intensive therapy to? I think most will say high-dose cytarabine consolidation. Of course. Yeah. And what do you guys use in Michigan? What dose for your high-dex? We use, we use high-dose cytarabine. We do dose adjust for older age. So okay. um, when patients are um, above the age of, of 65, we generally dose reduce to two grams per meter squared. Okay. Um, okay. And then we, we dose reduce further when they get in the 70s and 75 range. And, and, and we've had randomized control trials, I think, of, of consolidation doses of cetirabine, have we not? We've had a couple of New England Journal studies, I remember, for about a decade ago. Yeah. Um, the first study is uh, the Mayer study in New England Journal in 1994. <laughs> so this is going way, way, way back. Yeah, I don't know. If and I that read compared that. high no, DAC. I think I did read it. Yeah. Go yeah, on. High DAC. Three grams per meter squared yes. to um, intermediate, or I would say standard dose cetirabine. So I think at like 400 milligrams per meter squared, 500 milligrams per meter squared. So pretty low doses, um, continuously infused for five days. Mm-hmm. And the high dose cetirabine um, had a survival benefit in younger patients in that study. There's some major flaws to that study that I think uh, we kind of ignore. And so we know three grams per meter squared is better than lower doses, mm-hmm. but I think the in-between is a huge unknown. Of course, yes. Um, yeah. But there's another study, I thought, a few years, about a decade later, an intermediate uh, dose study. There's a lot of European studies uh-huh. um, that look at intermediate doses. And I think the problem with a lot of these in extrapolating to the U.S. is their use of double induction as well, mm-hmm. um, which makes it hard to kind of cross-trial compare um, what's the best cytarabine dose. I really think we don't know. But I do think in general, most people in the U.S. are not giving 5 plus 2 consolidation. 5 plus 2 is think, trash. Trash. Yeah. I think, yeah. Trash. I think they yeah. looked at the NCCN guidelines <clears throat> and they picked literally the worst option. Yeah. So bottom line it for me. And, and, and the other thing is I think some people are giving CPX um, 351 to people who they think would otherwise not be fit enough for uh, uh, induction, which I think is just totally crazy. Um, it's crazy. That, it's totally crazy. And that's not what the trial did. And, and then the other thing is some people think it's like you have to give it if anyone has treatment related MDS or tre- sorry, if anyone has treatment related AML, you have to give it. You can't give anything else. And I think that's also crazy. Um, so do you use it at all? Who do you use it in? We never use okay, CPX-351. We agree. Right, so fine. we actually, um, we anticipated this drug coming out. Um, and we, we recognize that these secondary AML patients, they don't respond that well to 3 plus 7, although they do better than they did in this trial. Their response rates in other trials are typically around 45%, not you know the 33% they saw uh, in this trial. So we started using FLAG in our patients. So fludarabine and high-dose cytarabine. Um, 
and that's tolerated in patients, you know, up to their to their 80s. There's no anthracycline in that regimen, um, which we know doesn't work quite as well in these these secondary AML patients. And and we did that because the goal of these patients, if they're fit for chemotherapy, is to get them to a stem cell transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, and we figured, why beat them up with three plus seven if FLAG is going to have you know about a 50 percent response rate in this setting as well. We can get them to transplant. We can keep them in remission. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we conducted a study at our own center comparing flag to three plus seven. We called it the fossil study. Um, you know, have to give it a cool cool yeah, acronym, cool nickname. Of course, otherwise nobody will remember it. <laughs> um, and then recently, um, we did a multi center study uh, with a collaboration of pharmacists from around the country, looking at high dose cytarabine based regimens. So high dose cytarabine plus a purine analog, things yes. like. Flag, clag, etc. Yes. Compared to CPX351, and we uh, we presented the data at Ash last year, but it was a non-inferiority design to show that response rates are just as good with something like flag that maybe cost you a thousand dollars compared to something that costs you know upwards of a hundred thousand dollars with no difference in in survival outcomes. Um, so that's that's what we use in these patients that are fit for chemotherapy. We use um, flag chemotherapy. But wait, you're saying the study that you ran, is it randomized or? It's not randomized. So I, I think our issue is, is funding. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, of course you're not, there's you're no not, incentive to do course, a trial like yes, that. I know. I, and, I know it's, a, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, there are so many studies one could do and the studies we get down are the ones where the for-profit companies back it. So CPX three, five, one, is that jazz pharmaceuticals? Yep. Oh, of course. All right. All right. Well, that's enough about that. I, uh, CPX351, I say thumbs down. Okay. One, let, one other thing I yeah. want to mention, because okay. I think this is getting a lot of hype at ASH right now yeah. on Twitter. They continue to talk about their post-transplant outcomes yeah. and how great they are. Oh, people who get Vixios, there's something about the drug. They do better post-transplant. But if you look at the, the patients that went to transplant in both arms, there was about double the amount of patients going to transplant with active AML in the control arm compared to the Vixios arm. So it's all about transplanting people with active disease. And not the Vixius itself, right? And not and so the Vixius And if you itself. give them flag or something instead, maybe you'll yeah. lower that rate. You know, Or HMA. <laughs> or HMA, yeah. Um, I would say the problem with this space fundamentally is, um, you know, the, that the doctors, they can be seduced by these kinds of messages that anyone who spent time doing data analysis would know is just nonsense, like, or there are a million other potential explanations right. for it. Um, Okay, next drug. Glass Degib. This is garbage. I mean, come this on, I can't garbage. even read Glass Degib. <laughs> the control arm is garbage. Low dose ARC, oh, get out of here. We it's haven't awful. Used, we, that's an inferior, it's a known inferior regimen. It's awful. Bernie, your thoughts? I, I don't even know if it's worth discussing. Okay. <laughs> Glass Degib, it's, it, it, people hate taking it. Um, makes people's taste change. Um, it's just an awful drug. I, I never used it, never will use it. Um, inferior strategy. I think maybe the niche they're trying to go for is people with, you know, porous AML. You know, maybe it's a different mechanism of action. But in those patients, in the high-risk cytogenetic patients, there's no difference compared to low-dose So even in the patients where you, you might use it, you'd never use it. Yeah. So. Ridiculous. Okay, let's talk about um, uh, the IDH inhibitor, ASA uh, plus anacitinib. 
I think this trial is hilarious because the the EHA presentation last year, and I think that's where this survival curve comes from. Um, the the title of it, you know, is something like "Anisidinib improves overall response rates and you know event-free survival rates in these patients." And then you look at the overall survival curves, and they completely overlap. There is no benefit to adding anisidinib to to HMA therapy. And I think these drugs, these are the drugs, these are the IDH inhibitors that were approved first in the relapse refractory setting based on essentially phase one slash two trials yeah, showing, a showing about rate. a 20, 25% response rate. Yeah. And I think the problem with these agents is they take so long to work. You know, they take two to three cycles, two to three months to see any effect. Yeah. And often, you know, six months or more to see complete remissions. And I think, um, yeah. The cost is what thirty grand a month for these drugs? Unbelievable. Um, so I guess I would say that um, you know these drugs have been so touted. I mean, these IDH inhibitors have been touted. In fact, some people even go as far as to say it's a reason why we were right to teach you the Krebs cycle. I'm like, get exactly. out of here, get out of here. <laughs> I mean, you don't even need to know the Krebs cycle to know that I, you know, somebody has an IDH mutation with AML. You should consider it in a, in a salvage setting. And then the initial trials were those randomized trials. I think of like best supportive care versus the drugs. Um, they all had meager survival benefits, no cure to fraction. Is that an accurate characterization? Very meager, couple months. Yeah, I mean, the original trials, there's no comparator. Well, there's at no all, comparator, which is which is hilarious. I mean, yeah, I mean, the FDA approved it with just a response rate. They said, "Hey, we have a targeted therapy here. We have to approve it." Yeah, and that's the, um, that's one of the problems. And then, um, and then now we have the AZA. Uh, we'll see. There'll be more trials. Maybe they'll eke out some benefits somewhere. But they're not transformative drugs. They're not curing people. No. They're not. And, people talk about the toxicity not being so bad. Perhaps, exactly. but I mean, you know, you could have given these people just AZA and that toxicity is obviously tolerable because the control arm is getting just AZA. Yeah. And what are we going to see in the future? Triple combo. We're going to see HMA, VEN, and these IDH oh, inhibitors. Oh, God. I think yeah. it'll be quite toxic, actually. Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. let's talk about uh, 7 plus 3 plus GO. Gemtuzumab, uzogamycin. How do you say it? Yeah. Uzogamycin. Ozogamycin. Ozogamycin. I think. <laughs> yeah. My <laughs> favorite drug it. because it was... It was approved, nine, nine milligrams per meter squared, randomized trials at six milligrams per meter squared, didn't look so hot. Failed. Failed. They pulled yeah. it off the market, then three milligrams per meter squared, it's got another go. Got another go. Got another go. <laughs> yeah. So what's this alpha study? 0701, so yeah. This alpha study, I mean, this, this study um, came out in the interim from the drug being pulled from the market and then reapproved a couple of years ago. And when it got reapproved, it got reapproved basically out of the blue. There was no new data to say, oh, this should be used. Yes. But everybody references this, this alpha trial. So this, this alpha um, 0701 study, um, this was a trial of um, 7 plus 3 with or without gemtuzumab Um And this was a, a, a French trial. And the thing they did to mitigate the venoocclusive disease, which is the major um, limitation to using this agent yeah. is they split up the gemtuzumab dose. They fractionated it. So you give three milligrams per meter squared at a time to try to limit that VOD. It still uh -huh, occurs, uh -huh, uh -huh. and it still occurs more commonly in gemtuzumab patients than in placebo patients. And so they, they conducted this French trial. Um, again, a major issue of this trial 
And these patients were 50 to 70. So, you know, half the patients in this trial, the dono dosing was potentially suboptimal. They used 60 milligrams per meter squared again. So it's another trial where they're lowering the anthracycline dose to give another targeted, let's say, agent. I think the other um, issue in this trial then as well is in consolidation, it's not your standard HIDAC consolidation with three grams per meter squared. It's intermediate dose cytarabine plus an anthracycline um, plus gemtuzumab. So it's not, it's not quite the same of what we do here in the U.S. And then initial trial, which was published um, in Lancet in 2012. Yeah. So it, this was well before it got reapproved. Yeah. Showed an overall survival benefit in these patients. Yeah. But then when they did longer follow-up, and this was published in Hematologica in 2018, mm. there was no survival it benefit. Vanished. Right. Okay. Exactly, because these patients can be salvaged with high-dose cytarabine-based strategies. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think this was a trial where initially there was a signal, maybe there's a survival benefit. Um, but then in longer term follow up, these patients can be salvaged. Now, some and people then, say that there's some, you know, there's this meta-analysis that looked meta -analysis. at, yeah, base, and, and, and then they, they specifically recommended for favorable risk patients. Uh, what, what was that? What was that meta-analysis? Or there's a certain, yeah. or was it in version 16 or something? Some specific, nope, this stuff. is, you're exactly right. So this is the Hills meta-analysis in Lancet in 2014. Yeah. Um, and this meta-analysis looked at, it essentially included, uh, this Alpha trial, um, the Petersdorf SWOG trial, and some UK trials, uh, and one French trial, one other French trial, I think, uh, of gemtuzumab compared to standard therapy uh, in AML. And in the meta-analysis, there was a survival benefit in intermediate risk, although if you look at the curves, they're, they're eerily similar. I, I think, see. you know, at, at five years, it's like 35% versus 33% <clears throat> survival in intermediate risk, so potentially no benefit there. But in favorable risk, um, there was about a, a 15 to 20% survival benefit um, in patients getting gemtuzumab. But I think the problem with this meta-analysis is it doesn't contain the updated data from the alpha trial. So it's got old data in it from the trial where originally it did show a survival benefit, now it does not. Um, that data is all not in the trial. I think the other issue is in a lot of these regimens, you're not comparing 7 plus 3 with Dono 90 and HIDAC at 3 grams per meter squared, which is what we do for our core binding factor patients. Right. You're comparing suboptimal therapy to suboptimal therapy plus gemtuzumab. So yeah, if you want to use you know, suboptimal therapy, you probably should add gemtuzumab to it. <laughs> but if right. you're going to stick with you know, standard Dono dosing and HIDAC, there's, there's really no benefit to the addition of gemtuzumab that, that we know of. And it definitely adds toxicity in young, curable, fit patients. So you don't use it? No, we don't use it. Okay. Giltritinib. No, sorry. Giltritinib. Sorry, let me yeah. say it again. Giltritinib. 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 The Admiral yep. trial, yes. <laughs> the Admiral trial, yeah. So <laughs> I, think, I think what's funny about... So Giltritinib is a FLT3 inhibitor. It inhibits both FLT3 ITD and FLT3 TKD. Um, so this was studied um, in patients with relapsed to refractory FLT3 positive AML. Most of these patients were FLT3 ITD patients. There were some uh, TKD patients on the trial, and they randomized them to physician's choice therapy versus single agent gilteritinib. And of the physician's choice therapies, I think this is where this trial maybe suffers. The options were low-dose ARC, which, come on. It's garbage. Stop doing that, Stop please. Stop doing that. It's criminal. <laughs> Um, azacitidine, which 
azacitidine and relapsing are not the greatest option. Yeah. Um, MEC or flagide. So MEC is mitazantroni, topside, and cytarabine. So yeah. two very, very intensive toxic regimens where you don't always want to include an anthracycline in these patients uh-huh. versus potentially inferior therapy like low-dose cytarabine and azacitidine. So, oh, it's interesting. So what it'll do is it'll take people who you would have pushed um, – a little bit harder and you drop them to the lowest because you don't want to go to the exactly. high. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Yes. So that's the issue. It, there's a lot of people where you're like, I, you know, I can't give this patient neck, but you know, I could give them flag. I could give them some intermediate yes. base therapy. Yes. That's chemotherapy. That still is not. Yes. Yes. You know, neck. And why can't you get flag if you can get flag? You know, I'm so sick of this, like they call it <laughs> investigator choice. And then they restrict the choices in a way. Uh, I'm sick yeah. of this in every study they have these garbage investigator choices like um uh, um uh i think in like BRCA breast cancer but you can't give platinum or like what the hell are you doing yeah. they're just taking away the things that you would want to give okay oh, very yeah. interesting okay compared to regimens are either really toxic or um or inadequate if you ask me exactly. oh i see in your comment you mentioned quizartinib quizartinib is uh that trial had so <laughs> much censoring and it. it's so much it we did a paper recently on imbalances and censoring and quizartinib was like off the charts bad and the fda pointed it out and it didn't go anywhere for good reason yeah good good reason i i agree um i think i think the quizartinib trial and the gilteritinib trial are eerily similar yet we approved one and did not approve the other. Yeah. And I think if you look at the the overall benefit of gilteritinib compared to chemotherapy, you know, it's not that much different than they saw um, in that quizartinib trial. And that's something like nine months versus five months. Yeah. I think I think that's I think that's potentially very, one of the yeah yeah very very marginal benefit. And I think probably one of the biggest criticisms is how poorly the standard arm did in these trials. Yes. I think the, it's the CR rate yeah. with chemo is like 15%. And I, <laughs> I, I can't say that our response rates to chemotherapy in this refractory setting are 10 to 15%. So, I you mean, know, more like one 50%. commonality that you've highlighted in several trials from the mitostorin study to CPX351 to gilteritinib and even to the alpha, or even to go, gemtuzumab, uh, is, is... If you don't do a good job with the control arm, yeah, some of these agents might eke out a benefit, but that doesn't really inform our practice because we do a good job with what we're doing. Um, fair to say that's true in all these four studies. Totally agree. And I, and I think that's one of the most insidious um, issues with these trials is that they appear to be good. You know, they're a randomized controlled trial against physician's choice. How can that not be the best trial design? Right. And until you really dig into these studies, do you point out all the flaws? Yeah. And I find that every year that goes by, I I see that more and more uh, to the point where, you know, I've concluded that you just, the person who stands to make $4 billion from the sale of a product just can't be the person designing the trial. They'll always find a sneaky way to run a crappy study. Um, they'll always do that because they have so much incentive to do that. You have to have some independent third party. Even then, as we saw with the um, uh, the uh, the Mitostorin study where it is an independent group, they're not really independent because they're dependent, I think, on the company for donating drug. So they got to kind of play to their whims. Um, and, and many of the investigators are probably conflicted. I mean, in fact, I'm sure that is the case. Um, so you need true independence, which we just don't see in oncology. Let's talk about uh, CC486, Quasar. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, your this, favorite this drug, drug Oralaza. Oral, it's Oralaza. What, what can, and now with Oralaza, Oral Ven, it's an all oral regimen. You're ready to go oh, home with AML. It's so good. It is coming. It is coming for sure. Yeah. Um, so this Oralaza trial, I I think one of the most frustrating things is this has not been published yet. This has been approved. We've had press releases. We've had an ash abstract last year. We still do not have the publication. And I think there's a lot of hidden messages going on and we're missing some of the key pieces that we, we need to know from this trial. So this was a trial of patients um, who had newly diagnosed AML. They were 55 years of age and older. Um, they had intermediate or porous disease because, you know, favorable risk disease patients, we just give, you know, high DAC consolidation, right? They don't, right. they shouldn't go on to maintenance therapy. Right. Um, and these were patients who were, um, essentially ineligible for transplant, we said. You know, even though they had porous disease or were intermediate risk disease, they were ineligible or they didn't want to go to transplant. For, so for some reason, transplant, the investigators decided it wasn't a good, good idea for these patients. And I think the biggest flaw in this trial is they did not require consolidation in these patients, which we know in AML, I mean, we've known this since the 70s and 80s, if you just give someone induction and you give no consolidation therapy, every single patient will relapse. Right. You need to give some consolidation therapy. So, you know, this has a lot of similarities to the POLO trial where you took people responding to effective therapy yeah. and you put them on maintenance or placebo. I, th I think there's so many, so many similarities in this trial compared to something like that. So wait, remind me, in, so I haven't, yeah, of course I haven't read it because it's not, it can't be read. Um, Quasar <laughs> AML, what was the induction they received? So um, I don't think there was a standard induction, nice. but it had to contain anthracycline, I believe. Okay, okay. Um, I can check really Actually, fast. I'm gonna check too. Okay, the study went about 460 people, age 55 or older, with de novo AML, secondary to MDS or CMML, who achieved CR following induction with or without consolidation chemotherapy, with or without, and then it randomizes them to oral AZA or placebo. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I so I, I don't believe you had to. It could be anything. Have randomized yeah. to receive or placebo. What the hell is this placebo nonsense? Um. Okay, let me. Oh, read it, this. it gets worse. It, it El gets worse. Eligible patients within four months of attaining CRCRI, they're randomized one to one to this or placebo. Uh, Twenty-one day dosing schedules permitted. Um, okay, sure. Primary endpoint is OS. I guess it is. A, it is smelling like polo, huh? Because very much. And 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 eighty six percent at intermediate risk and fourteen percent at poor risk cytogenetics. So they're not all poor risk. Um, okay. And and what would be your your estimate? Like if you had to, if you had to estimate how many of your AML patients get two or three cycles of consolidation, would you say that's the the goal? You know, it certainly patients, is the goal. I guess I should say, you know, I've only ever been a leukemia doctor as an inpatient attending. It wasn't part of my outpatient practice, but I attended on it uh, for all the years I worked in Oregon. Um, and uh, I follow it intently and closely, and I'm very interested in the inpatient, at least the acute decision-making right. that comes, which I think is the most interesting part. Um, totally agree. It's, uh, um, and, and I guess I would say that, I'm just thinking through this right now, 
I mean, I'm trying to think, like, who would I actually be comfortable with putting on placebo? Uh, it's almost unheard of. I mean, unless something happened while getting consolidation. Um, yeah, I just don't and, see And even that. then. And even then. Yeah, so I think, I think in that population, you'd think, you know, if someone is maybe unfit, they have a bad event in consolidation, and you say, I, I want to put you on maintenance. I think the other question is why not give them Aza? Is it, exactly. Why not give them Aza? Or why not wait? Mm. You know, monitor the patient closely until they realize. Give yeah. them appropriate post protocol therapy. If they're already doing poorly, giving them therapy forever maybe isn't the best use of resources and quality of life. Um, if that patient initially had a poor run with consolidation therapy. Hmm, that's a good point. If anything, I mean, this trial probably is taking people who are fit enough to get consolidation and not giving them consolidation is my guess. Correct. That's your guess and, too. Yeah. And, yeah. and the numbers here are, I think, really interesting. So 20% of patients got no consolidation. 45% hmm. got one consolidation. So that's already... 65% of your patients got zero or only one or only, yeah, consolidation which is inadequate. cycles. You know what? Exactly. The, I mean, look at the way the trial is done. Um, it's a feature that's common in polo in this trial, which is, um, you know, polo is you had to get at least four months of therapy. And this trial, you like you, you could have gotten consolidation. But imagine being the person, like when you're the person in the doctor's office, if the trial has an open slot now, you're going to want to jump in and take it, even if you, what you really wanted to do was get a little bit more consolidation under your belt before you jumped in the trial. You know what I mean? Like exactly. the way the incentives are around all these trials is to deprive patients of therapy because that I'm sure, I'm not sure, but I have a feeling that the doctor is going to be like, well, you know, um, we have the trial open right now. And if you got a couple more consolidation cycles, uh, I don't know if it would still be open, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I think people are naive if they think that kind of thing doesn't go on. It goes on quite rampantly because people have a huge in incentive to get people on these studies, financial, non-financial. Um, it's a huge problem. I mean, I think anyone who's been a fly on the wall at many of these consent meetings wants to sometimes vomit because it's a lot of nonsense <laughs> being said. Um, so I think that that is a, it, it is a, sa a, sa a subtle way to sabotage someone's, um, someone's consolidation here. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, we got one last one to go. It, it gets worse. Sorry. Oh, I, no. okay. I just want to harp Fine. on this a little bit more. So finish it off. I think one of the things I learned from your you know, podcasts and many others, you know, we have to pay attention to what these patients got after, you know, what was their post protocol therapy, especially in the placebo arm, right? So I think what's interesting about this trial, and this, this isn't published yet, but this is information that the company, you know, gives out and calls is, um, and this is something they, they haven't talked about, and we need to see the data is on what proportion got appropriate post protocol therapy. And I think the number was pretty high. I think it was like something like 70 or 80%. It was a, a decent number. I mean, it should be 100% of patients. Mm -hmm. But I think what's scary is in that number, they're including low-dose ARC, again, again, as potentially appropriate post-protocol therapy, and hydrea. They counted hydrea. hydrea. Oh, yeah. yes. I'm, I'm not kidding. So hydrea was counted as post-protocol therapy. And, and this isn't a small fraction, like 1% to 2% of patients. We're talking like 10 to 20% of patients getting basically nothing. And then the other interesting part of this trial is they have this 
Second phase, so let's say these patients are on maintenance or they're on placebo and they develop 5 to 15% blast, which is AML relapse. When you have that amount of blast, you need to be retreated in this setting. We know that. So if you're on the placebo arm, you have the option to get more placebo. If you're on the oral AZA arm, you have the option to escalate your azacitidine to 21 days, so to get more azacitidine. And that didn't happen in like 5% of patients. That happened in, I think, 17% of the placebo patients. It was like 20% of the cohort overall received this ramp up. So in the placebo arm, when they relapsed, 20% of them got placebo again. More? Really? Where did you get this data? Where's this coming so from? So it's a subset of the study Yeah. Um, of in patients who had, so I, I tweeted tough. a picture of this. Yeah. So um, there's an arm, if you relapse with 5 to 15% blast, you weren't called a progression oh and you had God. the option to increase your AZA dose. So it's just or another way. Or if you're on placebo, yeah, you, increase, the placebo you dose. increase your placebo dose. And if you had over 15% blast, that was a progression. This is ridiculous. That's so unethical. <laughs> oh, no one, it's so bad. It's so bad. Oh, so bad. <laughs> These trials are so bad. Oh, God. I know. Oh. I know. All right, let's do the last one before our time okay. runs out. This one I actually, I, I actually had. Ah, event. Yeah. I thought was decent. But you found something. Yes. yes but it's I, not I as egregious. Think, it's decent. No, it, it's definitely not as egregious. Okay. I think, um, so the azacitidine venetoclax, so initially it was studied in a, in a phase two trial, um, either azacitidine or decitabine with venetoclax. And it was approved based on that phase one slash phase two trial um, based on a survival rate of 17 months, which as a baseline, if you give somebody hypomethylating agent alone, you're looking at about a year of survival. So they saw, you know, five months longer in a phase two, approved the drug. Response rates were not any better in that trial than 10-day decitabine. Mm -hmm. You know, if you give 10-day decitabine, you're talking 50 to 60% response rates. So it's it's based on that Im improved survival. Well, it's based on that promising survival in that phase two study. So then they did the phase three trial. And I'll give them credit. This was a, a fairly well-designed trial. Yeah. I think there are just a couple of issues and questions, mostly with people extrapolating this data to populations where I think it doesn't quite fit. Like fit people um, can get seven plus three. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this this was in patients who, you know, were, were older or who were unfit for, for therapy, and they randomized them to azacitidine with placebo or azacitidine and venetoclax. And there was an improvement in survival from something like 14 months to nine months uh, in the placebo arm, uh, which it is a significant survival improvement. It's not, I think, the game changer that everyone talks about it like. And it's probably not the reason to add venetoclax to everything because of a three-month survival benefit compared to azacitidine alone. Um, but, but it is a, a fairly well-done trial. So I think this does have a role. I think the issue is in extrapolating it to young, fit patients. Because I, I don't know that the remissions are as deep as giving this to people um, who are young who can get intensive chemotherapy. Yeah, I certainly think they have not shown that yet. Um, your point's well taken. Do you do a lot of 10-day decitabine, and do you do it five and then give them the weekend off and do five more? So we do a lot of these patients, you know, ideally you treat them outpatient, yeah. right? But so many of these patients are so sick that you need to treat them 
inpatient when they're in the hospital. And I think that's also kind of a marketing thing with this HMA Ven combo is yeah. you can deliver this entirely outpatient. It's all outpatient therapy, but some of these patients, they never recover their counts. Uh, let's talk about so the counts. Their counts go to shit. Oh, I mean, it's a disaster. The counts are a disaster. And then they're, and they, and they, I mean, then you really have to, then they spike a fever and it's over. They're in the hospital a long time, yeah. a long time. Yeah. Now. So they, so they end up in the hospital, I think longer than we intend. And so for someone who's transplant eligible, um, and who is, who is fit, you know, this isn't something that's going to always act very quickly. And someone who's older and maybe unfit and just wants to go home, if their counts are normal at baseline, this is great, right? We can get them home. Um, they can be transfused. But in some patients, their transfusion burden is so high. If you give them HMA and VEN, they're never going to leave the hospital. Um, there are some patients, like we treat patients up in the, in the UP, you know, they can't travel down to Michigan to get you know, outpatient to cytobine and venetoclax is just too challenging. So in some cases, we we have to use intensive chemotherapy. We can't always use this regimen. The last thing we didn't talk about is serafinib for FLT3 um, <laughs> after transplant. Uh, I saw this very, there's like a Chinese randomized control trial. There's another very small study. Uh, you use it or no? We do use it. I will say that I think there's some issues in the trial. A lot of these retrospective studies, yeah. there's a massive immortal time bias. You know, if you're on the serafinib arm, you survived. You had no GVHT. You did great. And so we put you on the serafinib arm. And the control arm, these patients, you know, these are the patients who aren't fit enough to get serafinib. And so I think that's one um, issue with the data. But we have been using serafinib for, for a long time. I don't routinely... Uh, round or get to influence uh, the, the, the DMT group yeah, quite right. as much as our yeah. hematology group, which I think is is really strong. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky to get to work with um, you know several great pharmacists, um, Anthony Parasinati, Lydia Benitez, and others who really influence practice uh, on the hematology side with me. And and our attendings are fantastic. This has been a helpful discussion of some of the things that people don't talk too much about with pretty much all of these drugs. And if I were to say the take-home lessons, the take-home lessons are, um, you know, one is something that we've written about. Rachel Cook was a leukemia doctor at, um, at uh, OHSU, and she, Jenny Gill, and I wrote an article about um, patients who are, quote, um, uh, what is it, not eligible or can't tolerate in, in, uh, aggressive induction treatment. And that's just like a, such a loose and... Um, capacious category that people just push that into everything and 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 one of the things is when you come up with a new shiny fancy drug for people who cannot tolerate the the induction regimen um, and the company comes and just really pushes the hell out of it. There are going to be all these people on the margin who probably in the past you would have given aggressive induction that you're saying, yeah, it's okay. They can get A's of N, A's of N, A's of N. And you may actually erode outcomes, even though the drug may actually be beneficial in the people who are truly ineligible for aggressive therapy. And that's sort of an, um, a, just a, a totally misunderstood point. The other point I think that you're making that's super important is many of these studies, 
uh, CPX, uh, G- Geo, um, Mitostorin. They are dogging the control arm. They're just not doing as good a job as we would. If we weren't participating in those studies, we wouldn't be too happy with that control arm. You pointed out a really interesting one to me, Quasar, where you had four choices, but two, two, it's like the story of Goldilocks. Two were too hot and two were too <laughs> cold and you didn't get the bowl that was just right for you in the control arm. And what that leads to is if the choice is between too aggressive or inadequate, the doctor is going to say, oh, let's just go with inadequate so we don't have to deal with all that toxicity. And so you're going to get inferior outcomes. Um, and not to mention, you pointed out that um, when you did have relapse, that you could have a dose escalation of placebo. That's just simply madness. That's a madness move. I mean, it is a madness move. <laughs> next, they'll say you can shoot the patient in the control arm. I mean, where does it stop? Where does it end? The harm. So, I mean, these trials suffer from this problem, and this is the problem I see throughout medicine. Um, in in this particular space that we've discussed, I would say um, these are these are little these are two steppers. You got to be a pro to catch all these. I can't admit, I you know, I have caught some of them, but I didn't catch them all. Um, so, I'm glad that you're here to show them to us. Um, they do affect interpretation. I think you need to be judicious. And so let's bottom line it. Um, uh, glass Degib, you never need to use that. CP, CPX, you never need to use never it. Use. Never use. Nope. Geo, you never need to use it. Nope. Mitostorin, maybe. 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 Uh, Azaven, sure. Yeah. 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 Azaven, in the right patient. In the right patient. In sure. the right patient. Um, Giltritinib, eh, no. Eh. Veto. Veto. <laughs> Um, yeah. so we get more data and the IDH inhibitor is more data needed. Yeah. 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 I think that's a, that's a great bottom line. And I think, you know, I, I think in oncology, we're at this space where, you know, we have all these agents with marginal data, everything's getting approved and it, it's really got to be up to us to try to control this, to try to decide, you know, this drug that's approved with a marginal gain, if no gain at all, we are not going to use this regimen. And that's what we've we've started doing, we call it oncology stewardship, yeah. kind of like antimicrobial stewardship, to try to control the use of some of these things. Because I think, you know, the bar, as you've talked about a thousand times, has been, uh, there is no bar there anymore. Is no bar. Let's, let's be real. There it's is no floor. bar. And so, you know, it's important for us to, to critically evaluate the literature and make sure that we're not harming our patients. I mean, we got to do what's best for our patients. Yeah. You call it stewardship. I call it you know, evidence-based medicine, people call it different things, but yeah. it's all, you know, once upon a time, this stuff wasn't so, un- yeah, it's common sense, <laughs> right? Which is that if you want me to use new $400,000 a year drug, you really have to show it's better than old $20,000 a year drugs in a very, very fair study. You can't yep. um, run a race and shoot your competitor in the foot and then say, I, well, I ran faster, see, I'm the winner. Um, and that's what you see over and over in these studies. Um, and these ones are a little bit more nuanced and tricky, um, but they're but they're just as important. And of course, um, we didn't talk about cost, but the cost of the the care of, of acute leukemia is just tremendous. It's just tremendous cost. Yeah. I mean, maybe only myeloma dwarfs it, um, and <laughs> transplant, um, and and CAR T. Um, okay, we got to do it again. And when we do it again, Absolutely. we got to do um, we got to do T cell lymphomas, CD thirty drugs. We got to do. Um, we got to do um, tafacetamab. Oh God, yes, uh, <laughs> garbage. Um, Pola. Uh, oh yeah. Oh come on, Pola BR. I've already taken to task on this. Oh yeah, you did. Um, uh, ta- tafacetamab um, and the control arm. What? They, they don't get rituxin, do they? They don't. No. Oh, crazy. Okay. Um, um, 
We've got the R squared, of course, everyone's favorite. We got to also we got to talk about double hit. We got to talk about dosage star epoch. We got to talk yep. about that. We got to talk about um, brentuximab. The ALL space is blowing up too. Yeah, you know, inatuzumab, linatumumab. There's so many flaws with this blin MRD data that yes. people just ignore. Yes, I I think it's I because agree. we're so, you know, we're so starved for drugs. Not that we actually are, but. People wanted something new in oncology. Yeah, you know, especially they wanted in something spaces. new in, in AML, right? Yeah. In, in leukemia. So anything they just want, they just want to use. Nalarabine, God, that data is so bad. So bad. So we will be back and we'll do a lymphoma episode. And then okay. ALL, ALL is above my pay grade, but I, I, <laughs> uh, but I can do it's it. I can space. do it. It's a good space. But yeah. Bernie, thank you so much for this. This tour of AML drugs. So. We're going to put this out soon. We'll see who, who's intrigued. It's been a pleasure. All right. We'll talk more again. All right. Cheers. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.